God, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you just for, a, gosh, what an amazingly blessed time we've already had. And Lord, we pray that right now that our hearts, our minds, our lives will be open to your truth. God, Lord, that we would be transformed as a result, and Lord, that you would be glorified. So we give you this time as we continue to teach through the book of Jonah, hearing his story. In Jesus' name, amen. Real quickly, we're going to be moving fast this morning. It's been a great, great morning. Um, and, uh, We'll, we'll, we'll see what we get out. Um, but so, so quickly, to recap kind of what we've covered in the last two weeks of Jonah. We're taking four weeks to teach through the book of Jonah. He was a, a prophet back in the day. He's in a section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets, not because he wasn't that good, but because his book is short. But he is a prophet from back in the day. Uh, he, th- this, some key truths we want to take away that we've covered so far is that Jonah gives us great pictures, great tangible pictures of sin and grace, both the acts of sin and both the, and then also the impacts of sin. And then we also see the act of grace by God and the impact of his grace over and over again. So make sure to key in to, to looking for those as we continue to teach. And then one of the things we've also seen is that we must be awakened to the reality of God being a sovereign God and a loving God. He's not only a sovereign ruler, but he is also loving, good, and attentive. And then in that, we must be awakened to the fact that the world is in need. And I'm using that word awakened because it takes us back to when Jonah was asleep at the bottom of the boat during this raging torrent of a storm. And we know that he was doing that, at least we conjecture very confidently, that we think he was doing that because he was hiding from the reality of what was called upon his life and that he was hiding from the, the mess, he was hiding from the need, he was hiding from the fear. And the best thing he could do was just go to sleep to miss it all. And so we see that in our lives, we cannot go through this life sleeping, but we have to be awakened to the reality of God's promise for us and his call on our lives. Jonah's greatest sin, he ran from God's call, which was to go to Nineveh and and tell them that that they needed to turn from their evil ways. And he ran from God. He said, I'm running from God. And his greatest sin was his own self-righteousness, his pride to say, I am worth God's promise, I am worth God's redemption, but they are not. And he put himself in the seat of judge, and he, got, he, he decided that he knew better than God, and his self-righteousness was his greatest sin, and we saw that we often, we often find ourselves in that same place. And last week, as we continue to teach, we saw that there is a great kindness in God leading us to repentance. The fact that God chased Jonah down across the, across the Mediterranean Sea and caused him to be thrown into the, to the raging torrent to his seeming death, we see that that's a kindness because God's kindness leads us to repentance because out of true repentance we find true faith that gives birth to hope and gratefulness in the midst of any circumstance while Jonah was still in the belly of the fish with no prospect of getting out he said thank you God and he said I will give you all of my worship because he understood who God was and he understood who he is and in that we see that we must preach the gospel to ourselves the gospel of Jesus to ourselves daily we talked about the picture of getting shaken up so that the, 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 the insides of us could make room for more and that the, the gospel could infiltrate every nook and cranny of who we are to the point that we are overtaken and transformed to where our life truly is a response. So we, we, so we, we must be shaking up with the over, overwhelming wonder of the truth of the gospel so that it would settle deep into us. 
So we must preach the gospel. What we see here in Jonah, we must preach the gospel before we ever attempt to preach it to anyone anyone else. John Owen says this. He says, the word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. So those are some key understandings that we want to make sure to take with us. Some key circumstances in the story of Jonah, this life of Jonah, this, happen, this, the, this happening in Jonah's life. Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh to proclaim, to proclaim God's word for them, which I already said he did not. He said, no, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction as far as he knew, basically going towards Spain across the Mediterranean. He didn't, he didn't want to, so he just fled. God chased him down, as I said, caused a great storm to come upon the boat. He was on, and then that, through the fear of the sailors and through Jonah's desperation and despair, he just said, throw me in, let me die. You guys, you'll find relief. And the the sailors worshiped God for real this time. They were pagan sailors, and they turned and worshiped God, seeing his sovereign authority over all of creation. And Jonah went down to the depths of the sea, thinking it was death for him. What happened, though? God, it says, God appointed a great fish. To, to swallow Jonah, right? Crazy. And if you, you want to have a discussion about that, I would say go uh, of why we take that literally. You can go listen to the last two weeks, especially last week's sermon of why we would say we take this literally, that Jonah was actually eaten by a fish and lived in a fish for three days and three nights. But Jonah's in there for three days and three nights. God restores his soul. He repents. He confesses. And after that, what happens? God says, all right, well, let's see how it goes this time. And the fish says it vomits Jonah out of his mouth. The first week we said we see the, in a, you know, this is a true narrative. And in a narrative there's always storylines. And we see these two storylines beginning in the first week. And we, the, the two questions that guide these storylines is, is what's going to happen to Nineveh and what's going to happen to Jonah. This week we get to see what happens to Jonah. Nope, sorry, Nineveh. Next week we get to see what happens to Jonah. So, with all that being said, this brings us to where we're at today. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Jonah 3. If you don't know where it is, I would just go ahead and swallow your pride and start with the table of contents because it is literally going to be two pages in your Bible and you won't find it unless you know where it's at. Or click on your apps. We also use the, the version, the Bible app, uh, live events that can guide you along as well. So, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of these underneath a chair near you. Let that be our gift to you. Uh, but before we get to chapter 3, we're going to back up one verse to Jonah uh, 2, verse 10. This is where really it all starts, and I just alluded to what it says. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So remember, let's just remember, and if you weren't here the last couple of weeks or you haven't read through Jonah before, let me just try to catch you up as I help us remember. Again, Jonah thrown into a raging sea, seeking down into the depths, and the words that were described in chapter 2 were these, these, these words of great despair, the, the words that just take us to the grave. The word sheol is the word for grave, and he just uses the word deep over and over again. He uses the word, he talks about being at the roots, at the foot of the mountain, so that's the very bottom of the earth. So he's just, it's this idea, he was as close to death as you could be as God. And then God brought that fish along. And it's not much better. I mean, yeah, you're alive, but now you're in this dark fish and you're, you're cramped and you're swimming around and you have no idea. And, and so we see that Jonah was in this place of, of physical and spiritual, just almost death. Nothing left in the tank in any way. And you see that he just contemplated and, and 
Again, God penetrated his heart and his mind and broke in, brought Jonah back to life, basically. And so then we come to him being vomited back out onto the beach. So we can say Jonah was resurrected. I mean, so that's the picture here. Jonah was resurrected. And here's what we have to see here that's going to carry us through today. Resurrection is the beginning of mission. So much of what we understand in these verses will hinge on that truth. Resurrection is the beginning of God's mission in our lives. So hang on to that today. I want to read, as we, can, as we come into chapter 3 now, I want to read uh, what Sinclair Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson imagined that it would be like for Jonah as he found himself just splatted out onto the beach. And by the way, he's back where he started. He's back where he started. So God just now sending his trajectory back to his original call. So here, listen to this. I think it'll be on your screen too. It's from Sinclair Ferguson. I love the imagination and I think it's so helpful for us to connect. It says this, we know nothing about that moment in Jonah's life when he rubbed his eyes and stretched out his hand to make sure that he really was on dry land. The previous 36 hours must have seemed like an eternity to him. The nightmare encounter with the storm and the contacts with the sailors, they would seem so vivid in his memory, and yet his own experience of God's power since then had been so profound, so life-shattering, they must have seemed like the events of a previous year. He was certainly a wiser and hopefully a better man than he had been merely hours before. To this changed man, we come to Jonah 3.1, and it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you've read Jonah 1 anytime recently, this sounds very familiar. So let me read to you Jonah 1, 1 and 2. This is the very beginning of this book. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amite, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The message, the beginning, is almost identical but this time we see a slight variation. What's the variation? It is that God does not even tell Jonah the message. He just says, go, go in blind obedience. I'll tell you the rest when you get there. To me, that seems more demanding. What did Jonah do this time? Chapter one, he said, oh no, I'm out of here. He fled from God as far as he could. Jonah, th Jonah 3, 3, the beginning of it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So what was his response this time with this blind call to obedience? He said, okay, I'll go. Maybe, it was, maybe the fish was still fresh in his mind, probably. I mean, what a picture of God's transforming work. And you look at this, and I won't go through all the, but as I was kind of sitting in this this week, coming into chapter three from chapter two, you're like, man, Jonah's a transformed man. He's new, he's, he's different. Coming into chapter 3, thinking about chapter 4, you're like, okay, so Jonah's not different because we know what happens later. But let me just say this. Whether it was true repentance on Jonah's part in that moment, it was Jonah's joy to go, or it was the wonderful gift of Jonah's will mercifully being bent towards God by the weight of God's rod against him, Jonah was changed. And now he was walking in the will of God. 
here we see that the will of God being done in your life, the, the ends justify the means. And whether, whether it was one way or the other, we see that there was a transforming work in Jonah's life that we can only give glory to God for and that we're going to see uh, for Jonah's good as well in some ways. And remember here, remember, we, we said this in this first acknowledgement of the call, that it was a crazy call. The, the, the lunacy of the call that, that came from God to Jonah is no different now. This call to go to Nineveh. Let's remember who these were. These were the Nineveh was occupied by the Assyrians, and they were very much so, I mean, I mean, enemies of the people of Israel. And not just like they didn't like each other and they talked they talk bad about each other, but warring, slaughterous people, and they had committed so much atrocities to the Israelites and many others. So, the, so just thinking about this, this command from God to Jonah that says, go to Nineveh, it would be like God coming to me and saying, Heath, I want you to go to the, the, the strongest, most saturated ISIS stronghold and walk right into the middle of that village and tell them that they are all, that they're evil and that they need to repent or they will be destroyed by my God. This, this all-American is, is, is all-American as I could be like, I, I can't get any more than this. I mean, I, I, I would stick out. And, and then to proclaim the message, like, it would be, you know, you American infidel, and then they would hear my message, and then it would just be, again, okay, that confirms it. You're done for. So, like, just thinking about the two great risks that push against Jonah's obedience here, this risk of life, and also a, too much of a demand on his heart of grace. He had, again, the reason, and we, and we alluded to this, we see the reason why Jonah fled. He didn't want the people of Nineveh to have a chance to repent and find forgiveness, to find redemption before God. So think about the demand, that, that demand against his heart of grace to know that these were his sworn enemy, the people that had, 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 had committed so much violence against his people that he was zealous for. And yet God was pushing against that and he said, go. That's where he's going. That's Nineveh. So in looking at Jonah's response this time, John Calvin points out that the effective work of God's that we see a picture here of God's effective work through his chastisement of his children. We see. Do you believe that there's no better place to be than the will of God, whatever that may be? You see, there, there will be struggles in this world. And I'm not just saying, like, losing your job. I mean, I'm saying you will come up against true adversaries in this world. Sometimes God just allows us to go through them. Sometimes he even brings us to them, as he did Jonah here. Do you count it your good to go through them if it means you come to see God as sovereign ruler over all things, who holds all things together and is working to teach you so that you actually know and don't just have this, this red knowledge, that you actually know from experience that he actually is a God who is sovereign over all things, who has rule and reign over all things, who is good, who is loving, who has a promise for you, but also has a promise for the world through you. Would it be better just to know that in words or to actually know that through experience? Would you be willing to go through whatever hardship if it meant that that would be more real to you? Does it help you in your present hardship? I know that every one of you have a present hardship. What is your posture towards that hardship? Are you resentful? Are you self-righteous that you don't deserve it? Or are you hopeful saying, God, sustain me in your grace. Lead me through it. Let my life be a, a light for you in the midst. And let me know you even more. Let my faith be strengthened as a result. What's better? What is the hope of salvation? Not that there are no 
difficult circumstances, but that there is a grace that sustains through all manners and matters of life. So now, a man that had tasted the hopelessness of his own sin and experienced the jubilation of a life delivered finds himself at the doorstep of an insurmountable task. The second part of John three, I mean, Jonah 3.3 3 says this, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And just to remind you of the splendor of Nineveh, 60 miles in circumference. That doesn't sound like much to us with our fast cars and highway systems and stuff. Thinking about the time, remove yourself from now, put yourself in then. Everything's on foot or by donkey and not much more. 60 miles in circumference. That's a big city at the time. The walls, Nineveh was surrounded by these walls, just this impervious wall that was 100 feet high. The wall itself was 100 feet high, and the wall, not just high but wide, was wide enough for three chariots to ride around side by side at one time. That's a big wall. This is, I mean, the, the city is majestic. And then not only was the wall 100 feet high, it was also in the entire circumference was lined by towers that were 200 feet high. That doesn't happen without having your stuff together. It doesn't happen without having success. It doesn't happen without having, I mean, you having experienced some goodness as the world would define. And don't think that's not intimidating. I mean, to be quite honest with you, when I picture an ISIS stronghold, I picture a village just with a lot of, a lot of ISIS people in it. That's not, I mean, think about this. This is, an, I mean, Gosh, could you imagine that? So think about Jonah walking up to Nineveh. You know, you know that he could see Nineveh long before he ever got there. I remember the first time I went to Colorado. I got off the plane, drove out of the Denver airport, and I saw mountains. I grew up in Georgia, so Stone Mountain was the biggest thing I ever seen. And you can walk from, from bottom to top in like an hour and a half and not even hardly sweat. I mean, but it was a mountain, Stone Mountain. So I remember I got off the plane, I'm driving, and I was like, I saw mountains with snow on them. And I'd never seen that before. And I was like, hey, guys, I was with the people that were with me. I was like, let's, let's go to those mountains. Let's go. Like, it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Like, you know, I'm thinking, because when, like, when I can see Stone Mountain, I'm like three miles away. Because, like, we have trees in Georgia, and the trees are tall. And so, you know, anyway, I could see the mountain a long ways away. So I was like, let's go. And they were like, Heath, that's, that's like a day's drive. And I was like, what? It's like right there. They're like, no, those, those mountains are huge. So he could see Nineveh from a long way as he's walking up. You know that he could see it. And just think about what's going through Jonah's head. Imagine that resentment and anger that Jonah had to fight against. His enemy and the enemy of Jonah's God, they, they, they were doing well. They lived there and they were doing well. Paying no mind, living every day like nothing's wrong, and they're taking what they want and coming out and doing what they want. He's walking up and he's, he's just, this has to be in his mind. He's human. And he's zealous. And he had just had an encounter with a guy that he couldn't say no to. And then all of the memories of those atrocities that they committed against the people of Israel. And Yahweh God would be swimming around. And, and Jonah still just, I mean, I, I just imagine him just kind of arguing. You know, he's talking himself up and then he's talking himself down. And then he kind of keeps moving forward. And then, he, and then he's like, no, I can't do this. And he turns around and goes back. And he remembers the fishes that way. And he goes back again. And just, it's crazy. That has to be what it was like for him. Totally conjecturing, but if Jonah's a human like I'm human, which he was, I mean, it's, it's gotta be close. So how did it go? Jonah gets to Nineveh. Jonah three, we're gonna read the rest of this chapter right now. So here we go, four through 10. Jonah began to go into the city 
going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not need, not, let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from this, his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then we see the work of God here, his response. Again, another great picture of grace. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So what happened? Jonah went to Nineveh. He proclaimed the message that God finally gave him. I mean, again, thinking, going back to the walking up, like, I just imagine him saying, all right, God, now? Can I know what I'm going to say now? Can I know what I'm going to say now? And it was this message of impending destruction. Finally, he gets that message. I'm not exactly sure how it went down. I don't know if this message that we read here, if it was literally all that Jonah said, if it was just this one sentence was all that he said. Did he say it one time? Did he say it multiple times? Or was this just a summary of his message that he encapsulated for us? Again, one time, multiple times. Did he repeat it as he went through the streets? I don't know. Did he somehow draw a crowd before making his proclamation? Or did the word spread through others? I mean, I can't answer any of those questions. But what I can say is this. Jonah was obedient to deliver God's message. The message God gave him when he gave it to him. The entire city heard his message, including the king. The entire city repented, including the king and his nobles. And God's judgment relented against the people of Nineveh. So what must we walk away from, from all this? What, 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 what must we walk away with? Hear this. God puts a command on, its li- on our lives, and that command is meant to result in his work. What are you and I responsible for? We are responsible for obedience. We are responsible to say yes. We're responsible to go as he says go. Think about the message that Jonah proclaimed. It seems grossly incomplete to me. So we must remember it is God's word illuminated and lit aflame by the Holy Spirit that will bring repentance and redemption to anyone, to you. I think about the time that I, I think about when I was in seventh grade and I surrendered my life to the Lord. I grew up in the church, I was in church long before this. I, I got baptized when I was eight because my pastor said, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And I said, yes. He said, do you believe in Jesus? I said, yes. He said, okay, come down Sunday, fill out a card. Fill out a card. No one talked to me about anything. No one prayed with me. And I got baptized a couple weeks later. Been in the church every, before that and ever since then. 
every year from, from eight years old to seventh grade, I, I, every summer I would rededicate my life at camp. I, I would rededicate, I was longing, I was searching for something, I was calling out, rededicate. And I, and I remember in seventh grade, I went, I was at this service and I went down again to rededicate and the guy taking the time he didn't ask me any great, profound, pointed questions. I don't remember what he said. But the word, the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit took his words and penetrated my heart and brought me to a place where I had never confessed my own sin and my own need for a Savior and acknowledged Jesus as my Lord and Savior, placing that miraculous, that, that divine trust in him. Before it was head knowledge. In that moment, God transformed me. He broke in through the Holy, by the Holy Spirit working in Steve Miller's words. Penetrated my heart, set those words aflame, and brought me to a place of surrender. I remember the night when I was 19 years old when I surrendered to this call of ministry where I just said, as we would use that vernacular, but saying, for the rest of my life, I will serve the church and I will serve the world through the church. That's all that I do. You know how that happened? It was this Bass Pro Fisherman evangelist. Not kidding. And he could, he could teach great, but he wasn't teaching yet. This happened, like this, this, this totally turning upside down in my life happened during his introduction. What was he doing? He had his fishing rod and a lure, and I remember there was a guy standing here like this, facing him, holding his hat in front of his belt, and, and Terry Chup cast the thing over his shoulder. I do not have a video to show this if you think that's what's happening. But he throws it and it comes back through and loops around and goes into the, into the hat. It was a trick. And somewhere in the midst of all that nonsense, the Lord spoke to me and said, Heath, my, your life is mine. Surrender your life. He, he, he didn't try to connect the metaphor at all. He didn't be like, you know, you're the, you're the lure and I'm the hat and I've got your life. I don't know. It was nothing like that. But he just said, your life is mine. I want you to go where I say go. Da, 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 da. And it was, I mean, and I could not ignore it. And it was nothing that Terry said. He didn't say, hey, if you feel called to ministry, you should consider it. He said, watch this. And he did it, and the Lord changed my life. <laughs> and I, it was bizarre and amazing, and my life has never been the same since. But the point is, it is the work of God that brings change. And we have to understand that. We have been given a command to go and to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus. The plain and simple gospel of Jesus, we must proclaim. We have to proclaim that in our, with our lives and with our words that Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a perfect and holy life and he died on the cross as the only worthy and atoning sacrifice for our sins as a substitute and therefore securing our innocence that we could be forgiven and no hope in this world and for eternity. As best you know, make that proclamation. Trust the results to God, but you have to. We must pray. So we must proclaim, we must pray. If this is a supernatural work that happens by the Holy Spirit, we better be dependent because we are not supernatural. Okay, in case you didn't know, we are not. We have the Holy Spirit in us, which he is supernatural. He works because he has no limits. His way, he can do what we can't. So if we want to see this kind of response to the truth of God in our lives, think about the whole city repented. The whole city was transformed in these moments, not because Jonah's persuasive. I bet he, I mean, who knows what he was like, but it was because God empowered the proclamation of his word. Nathan said it, we are people that love to pray. We're growing in that. 
we want we, we, we do love to pray and our, our, our prayerful expression is albeit imperfect as any bit of anything else that we are but yet we have to be a people of prayer and to say a people is to speak of the collective and the collective is only an expression of the individual so you have to be a people of prayer we have to proclaim but for that proclamation to truly see that that God's supernatural response man if we don't pray, if the Holy Spirit doesn't move, if he doesn't call people in, we're going to be out there just making a lot of noise. I pray you want to see this kind of response. If you've tasted the goodness of God, if you've tasted the gospel of grace, man, how can you hold it for yourself? The world needs to hear it. And we want to see this transforming work of Jesus. So we have to proclaim, we have to pray that it would be empowered, that it would break through and transform life, transform, transform lives. Imagine the work of the Holy Spirit through the proclaimed work of God through his church. It's the only way that we will see people convicted and convinced of their sin and their need for a savior. And then to understand their true worth. Not to have some false sense of self-esteem, but to have the truest sense of self-esteem that we are created by God for his holy purpose. And that purpose was, was marred in our sin and now it's reconciled and restored in Christ. So we invite you to pray. Every second Monday, which is this week, we do a prayer, a time of prayer in the office, which is just south of here, 1223 Drew Street at seven, I think. Seven, does anyone know? Seven? It's every second Monday, come pray with us. Uh, here on, on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., they gather to pray. As you are gathered together, just pray. Get out of your house, walk through your neighborhood and pray. You don't need a special occasion. If you believe that we can't do it on our own and only God can, we better lay our case before him and say, God, it's yours. Use me as you wish. And I would say, I look at our church and we are very good at proclaiming the message of, we're very good at not proclaiming the message of Jesus the wrong way. We understand it's relational. We understand it's intentional. We understand that it takes a long-term investment and that we want to live out our lives of the gospel before, before people let them know that we love and care about them before we ever tell them, you need to change. We understand it's the gospel that transforms and not, not just behavior modification. We do that well, and I see pictures of that everywhere. It's such an encouragement to see people just intentionally using their time, treasure, and talents in our church, thinking about how, how people in our church are involved in various organizations, organizations around our community in efforts to tangibly show the love and flourishing truth of God for his people. It's also amazing to see creative ways that our people are using their natural gifts and, and, and things that they enjoy to create spaces for lives to intersect with gospel intentionality. Thinking about the run club, thinking about soccer, thinking about Monet and mimosas. It's awesome. But to see the intentional, the gospel intentional heart behind those things, to know that in those things especially, it's not just let's get to have together and have a good time, but they are intentionally inviting those in their lives that need a space like that to see the love of God through his church. I would say I'm very encouraged by our church in that, that respect, and I see a great growing picture of that. And while I know that 
there are pictures of, of people actually proclaiming the gospel, the words of the gospel, the words of truth. I would say that's an area we could grow in. That's an area where we could grow to actually speak the truth. When was the last time the words came out of your mouth that Jesus Christ is the only hope for the world? When was the last time? I don't want to say this to guilt you. I say this to say, let's, let's be prayerful and, say it for, and ask God to awaken us. Remember, shake us up to where in our, it is so natural to us. We're so worried about being unnatural. We're so worried about being alive. We're so worried about pushing someone away. And man, let the Holy Spirit, let the love of God that's in you for his people guide you. Let him lead you. Let's scatter seed, the seeds of the gospel liberally and trust the, trust the fruit to the Lord. We have got to proclaim. So we pray and we proclaim. Do you want to see this kind of revival? Think about our city, the city that we love. Houston, Montrose, Heights, Spring Valley, just looking around, thinking about where people live. We are a church here in Montrose. We, we really focus on Montrose, but we also know that we have areas of influence throughout the entire city from where you all live. Are you praying for your people? Do you look at them as your people? I, I love dad's sayings. I remember the first time I saw Batman and Bruce Wayne, the, the new Batman Begins. Not, not the early ones, but Bruce Wayne as a kid falls in the well, breaks his arm, and his son repels down. He says, Bruce, why do we fall? He's like, so we can learn to get back up. And I was like, I can't wait to have a son. <laughs> I'm going to say that. And so, like, I love dad saying. So I have a few of them, and I'm already, like, my kids really just don't even understand any of it. But I, they're not, not going to have any memories of me not saying them. Like, one of them is Gavin's always asking why. And I said, you can ask why after you obey. That's a good one. Another one is, Gavin, these kids love to be first. I want to be the leader. I want to be the leader. So my newest one is, to be a leader is not just to be first. It's not always to be first. To be a leader is to take responsibility. Thanks, Rebecca Owsley. Remember when you said that? Leaders meeting? Now I have a, a, a dad saying from you. Thanks. So now you technically have a dad saying. So awesome. You can share it with Caleb. Okay. But to think about that, have, do you, have you looked at your, your opportunity to take responsibility for this world that God has given you? Again, he does the work, but yet he has called us. He's given us a call in our lives to go and proclaim. So let's commit to that. So we're going to close with this thought. I know it's a little bit of a long Sunday. Uh, but we're going to close with this thought. We started talking about the, the power of the resurrected life. The resurrected life being the beginning of mission. We've referenced Matthew 12, 38 through 41 the last couple of weeks as we have presented the apologetic of why we take Jonah literally because Jesus referred to it literally. But here we're actually going to teach from this text. So we've referenced this, Matthew 12, 38 through 41. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what is the sign of Jonah? Remember his story. There was death, there was resurrection, and then there was the glorious result of a people seeing and hearing the powerful truth of God and finding redemption through Jonah's life. 
through his response and proclamation. Jesus is saying here that in his own death, in his resurrection, a people that are enemies of God can know his glorious truth in Christ, in his work, and find redemption. After death comes the resurrection, and out of the resurrection comes the work of God, the mission. And now Jesus has left his mission to the church, the body of Christ, the people of God. If you are in Christ, you are a resurrected life. If you have confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, knowing that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and God, out of his love, sent his only Son, you are a resurrected life. And out of that resurrected life comes the mission of God. It is not just for eternal hope and security. It is for this present purpose, the very purpose given to Christ to come to this earth. Jesus said, as you have sent me into this earth, I have sent them. So he's saying, God, as you sent me here to save and redeem, now I am sending them out to do my work as I work through them. The power of a resurrected life. Look how far God is willing to go to deliver his people. He went as far to the point of taking on flesh and the sending of his only son so that our sin and death could be conquered at his own devastating expense so that we could be saved. He's determined nothing more. He has demanded nothing more of us than he has demanded of himself. So look at Jonah one more time and what God took him through. God was determined that his servants would serve him no matter what it cost him and no matter what it cost them. This is no different than you and me. Remember, it is God's kindness that he would not leave us to our own way, but that he would bend our wills to him no matter what it takes. Resurrection only comes after death, but the resurrected life is the only life that has true life. Are you willing to go through death, through the death that it takes to live that resurrected life meaning this life on the mission of Jesus for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel to see a revival like we see in Nineveh. I'll close with this. 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 12 says this. It says we, we are kind of starting the thought from verse 8. It says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We must die to ourselves, find and live out our new life in Christ. We must pray fervently for the people of God, for, for the people God has given us to proclaim the resurrected life of Jesus too, and we must proclaim that truth clearly, consistently, and courageously. Let's pray. God, you are so good, and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that in your love, you did not leave us to our own way, which we so often fight for, but in your love, you chastised our soul until the point that we turned and surrendered and found true life and redemption. And I pray now, as we look at this world, we remember the work of Christ in our lives, and that we would, with, with absolute prayerful dependency, pray that your word would come to life as we proclaim it and would penetrate hearts and change lives. And Lord, that we would live a life that lives out our identity in you with the joyful truth of Jesus, as well as the absolute intentionality of a resurrected life. So Lord, right now we say, we are yours. Right now we say, thank you for saving us. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room that hasn't made that confession, Lord, I pray just for your Holy Spirit right now to penetrate their heart. Lord, let them see that although it is terrifying in this moment, there is so much freedom in you. 
So, Lord, we thank you. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.